one year ago this week. In a huge development from Myanmar, the military has taken control of the country. The military has carried out a coup d'etat in Myanmar. They've detained key government officials, including the country's de facto leader, Aung San Suu Kyi. The 365 days since that coup have been filled with more alarming headlines. Aung San Suu Kyi was sentenced to jail for owning unlicensed walkie-talkies. The military, officially called the Tatmadaw, has cracked down hard on resistance movements. More than 1,000 people have been killed. And areas of the countryside have seen the worst of it. Here's Saliza Okling, a human rights activist from Chin State. My own hometown, Tantlang, has been attacked over 20 times. The place of my birth has been reduced to piles of rubbles and ashes. This is clearly a deliberate attempt to force the population out of the area. It is a campaign of terror. I'm Malika Bilal, and this is The Take. Saliza Okling is one of more than 200,000 Burmese people who've been forcibly displaced from their homes in the past year. We're going to hear more of his story soon, but I want to start with two journalists I spoke with. Emily Fishbein. I'm a freelance journalist, and I used to be based in Myanmar from 2015 until 2020. And Nunu Lusan. I'm freelance journalist, and I'm from Myanmar, but currently I'm based in Kuala Lumpur, Malaysia. Do you remember where you were one year ago and what you were thinking when you heard about the coup, Nunu? Before the coup, I'm living in Malaysia and working at the IT company. The morning when I heard about the February 1st, when I heard there is a coup, the first thing is I tried to call my family. But the connection is blackout in a car. The call didn't went through and I was panicked. And I just sit that morning, I just sit on the couch and I'm just keep uh, scrolling, you know, the news and then checking what is happening, what is happening, what is happening. Eventually, Nunu was able to get in touch with her family. But the news coming out of Myanmar was not promising, and she felt more people needed to know about it. That's how she ended up quitting her job in IT and working in journalism instead. For the past year, she and Emily have worked together on several articles for Al Jazeera as protests against Myanmar's coup evolved into armed revolution across the country. The country is kind of um, totally changed because people literally does not have freedom. Many people are struggling, like especially in the conflict zone. Majority of people are fleeing into the jungle. They cannot work. They cannot farm, they cannot do anything. There is a food shortage, medical supply, and many things. This is whenever we do reporting, this come up. Emily, what stood out to you the most about how this past year has gone? I think that the military has really done everything that they can to terrorize the people in order to maintain its power. So at the beginning, they were shooting people dead on the streets. Soldiers have fought with urban protesters using violence activists call brutal. As a flash mob of protesters took to the streets, a military truck drove into the crowd at speed. Five people killed, dozens more injured and arrested. By around May, we could see that the resistance movement was shifting towards the armed revolution because the people realized that 
street demonstrations were not going to take down the military alone, and that more and more people were dying. Fighters from the Karen National Liberation Army against forces from Myanmar's army and border defense force. It's an uneven fight. The fighters for independence facing a fully equipped modern army with heavy artillery and air support. The most potent weapons they have are rocket-propelled grenades. And so when that happened, the military retaliated with really horrific violence. People are dying so regularly that it has become normalized. And the levels of violence that have become normalized as well are really terrifying. In eastern Myanmar, a line of cars was trying to escape nearby violence. But soldiers torched the vehicles and burned the 35 people who were hoping to flee. They started launching airstrikes and shelling and burning villages and firing indiscriminately into villages, burning people alive, killing children, killing women, killing aid workers. 11 people in Salangi Township in northwest Sangyang region in Myanmar who were reportedly shot and burnt by military in an apparent retaliation for recent militia attacks. And then on top of that, blocking people's access to food and medicine and any humanitarian aid. So people's survival has become more and more difficult and dangerous. Even, you know, going out to their farms has become impossible. A full year without proper planting and harvesting means that there are severe food shortages across Myanmar right now. Add to that significant displacement in some states and... The UN warns that half of Myanmar's population could fall into poverty. Millions could face hunger. And so people are facing uh, challenges to survive on every level, not being able to farm, not being able to live in safety, um, not being able to you know, freely go here and there, especially in rural areas of the country now, which is where most of the armed revolution is happening. The military has really cracked down hard. So as you've both mentioned, the situation in rural Myanmar has become really desperate over the past year, and your articles have largely focused on that. Can you tell me a little bit more about how life has changed in those parts of the country since the coup? I think every aspect of people's lives has been affected. People don't have access to cash right now because the banking system has more or less shut down. Electricity now is very scarce. People have uh, regular blackouts. Um, internet has been shut down in large parts of the country where the armed revolution is going on. People are afraid of being followed because the military is using informants to track people's movements. So people have a general sense of unease and just difficulty to get through each day and a general uncertainty. Many scholars and journalists, including Emily and Nunu, argue that this general uncertainty is an intentional part of the military strategy. The tactic is called the Four Cuts, and the military has been using it for decades. Long before the military coup, going back seven decades, the military has targeted civilian populations in order to try to quell any resistance to its power. Cutting off food, funds, intelligence, and recruits is a commonly um, used explanation of the Four Cuts, but really it means cutting off everything so that people are intimidated into submission but it's had the opposite effect. The more that the military attacks people, the more people hate the military, and so they come back stronger. And we're seeing that now across the country. The military is really trying to just destroy everything in their path 
and the people are not backing down. And so now there's ongoing armed conflict, especially in areas of the country where the military has seen new resistance fronts. Since the coup, urban civilians have teamed up with ethnic militias united to resist military rule. So in the southeast, in Kareni state, also known as Kaya state. Myanmar's military have faced increased opposition from armed insurgent groups, like this one, the Kareni Nationalities Defense Force. There hadn't really been armed conflict going on in that area in years, as well as in Sagaing region in Myanmar's northwest, and Chin state also in the northwest. Although there had been armed movements a long time ago, now those armed movements are coming back and they're joining together with new armed resistance and they're fighting back strong and the military is cracking down harder and it's just spiraling out of control. Chin State is where Saliza Okling, from the beginning of this episode, is from. He's the deputy director of the Chin Human Rights Organization, but he sent us voice notes from India. He and his family fled there when the violence started escalating. Demographically, the Chin State is unique from the rest of Myanmar in that it is a state where Christians make up the majority of the population. The military regime has deliberately sought to target Christian leaders and places of worships in its brutal campaign against the Chin people. In one case in September, the military set fire to a church in Zauk's hometown of Tatlang. They then shot and killed the pastor, trying to put out the flames, and then cut off his finger and stole his wedding ring. Tatmadaw soldiers have burned or destroyed dozens of churches and Christian religious buildings. They have even blocked much-needed humanitarian aid access to communities who are now displaced by armed conflict across the state. Zauk hypothesizes that the military is targeting Chen State because of the area's religious identity, as opposed to the military's belief in Buddhist nationalism, and also because it thinks of Chen State as weak, it's the least developed state in Myanmar. Being the least developed region, Chin State has very few reliable road system or basic transportation infrastructure that connects the area with the rest of the country. And though the resistance has struck some solid blows against the military, it's the civilians in Chin State who are the most affected by the violence. 20% of the entire population have been driven away from their homes and villages in a matter of months. Chin State, Kaya State, Kachin State, Sagain Region. The stories coming out of these communities are largely the same and tragic across the board. Emily and Nunu have been committed to amplifying the voices of civilians, especially women, struggling to make ends meet amidst chaos. One of their harder stories, to read and also to report, focused on pregnancy in a conflict zone. So back in July, Nunu and I wrote about women who gave birth after being displaced by military attack. Because of the uh, fighting going on, in some area, the whole villages, the whole town has been gone into the forest to take refuge. So we spoke with women who were living in the jungle or in forested areas and had to deliver their babies under very dangerous 
conditions without also without access to medical care or medical supplies. Mostly, when they are in the jungle or in a forest, there's no shelter. Like some people doesn't even have like to use a tarpaulin for a shelter. So many of them, they were with a volunteer midwife, but they didn't have any sanitation. So they were just boiling、uh, the medical equipment with water. They don't have enough nutritions, and so they become like weak. And they had to give birth either in the forest, or one woman went back to her home while the military was nearby. So the lady, the midwife, and the pregnant woman, they went back to the village despite the military stronghold there. They went back to the village. They didn't even dare to make a fire. And at the time, the soldier was like passing nearby. And it was late at night, and the midwife had to cover her screams while she was giving birth. Because they are afraid that if they、uh, make a noise, the soldier will come. So that the lady put a cloth in her mouth,、mm. and then the midwife trying to deliver the baby. It, it was like very terrifying experience for her, and for the midwife and for the mother as well. So, for fear of the military, she's in labor but can't. Make a fire for light, and while she's screaming and, and childbirth pain, has to stuff something in her mouth so that you can't hear her because then she'll be found. It sounds harrowing. Yes, yes, is it? Nunu also interviewed another woman whose baby died shortly after the baby was born because they, it was the rainy season and they had no shelter; they had nothing for cover. And so there's children who are kind of these silent deaths that we can see, that are maybe not reported in these numbers when we see a number of people that were killed by the military, but they are at greater risk because they don't have access to their basic needs. Yes, and also we can see this is one of the impact of military focus strategy. Being in a, in a jungle, the heavy artillery can fall any time. Or they can get raped. A lot of women that we talk about, that we ask, do you feel safe? And they don't feel safe because they don't have shelter that can protect them. And they need sanitary pad, they need medicine. But、uh, when they are on the run, they cannot access to those. So it's really impact on a woman. You also report stories on women fighting back, though. Emily, can you tell us about some of those? Sure. Something that we've seen in our reporting is that women are also joining the armed revolution. Just as early on in the protest movement, women were on the front lines, especially garment workers,、uh, factory workers, and female activists. They were standing at the front of the protest movement. And then when the armed revolution started, women started joining as well. So there's one. Armed group that is only women. It's called the Myung Women Warriors, and then other resistance groups as well have large numbers of of young women, especially students. But overall, we can see that women are very energized to fight back, and they're fighting not only for an end to military dictatorship, but they're also fighting for women's rights and for women to be given an equal place in the future Myanmar. Yeah, when we report for the woman warrior, I interview women from Miao, which is the first woman armed group. So students, teacher, nurses, doctor, or so、um, the the woman, you know, they they were living like very comfortable life. 
But when the military coup hit the country and many people kill this woman, they want to show that woman can do what a man can do as well. And also, they want to protect their own people and their city. So the women are they are very proud of what they are doing. How are you all reporting from these areas of Myanmar? Talk to me about the challenge of reporting under conditions like this and how you're able to do it when you're not actually physically there. It is, has many challenges, especially the in some area, there's a no internet. So uh, we have to use phone. The normal cell line, the connection is not so good and it's not safe for them. But sometimes we have no other choice. Uh, one time I, I remember that one lady who is taking refuse in the jungle, she had to go up to the mountain to get signal to talk with me. And so these kind of challenges, and sometimes you're talking, you're interviewing, but the line cut off. Another thing is, in this time, is people in Myanmar, they are so hard to trust to other people because anyone can be informants, anyone can be danger to them. So whenever we try to connect them, I have to be trust with them that we are going to protect their identity and make sure that we are not going to expose them and then they open up. So some, they don't want to, you know, like talk because the risk is very high talking to someone that you don't know. So that's the challenges that I face. Nunu, as someone who grew up in Myanmar and has been talking to people in the rural areas a year after this coup, what is your sense from people about what happens next? How long can people exist like this? Yeah. When I talk to people, a lot of people are already exhausted. We can see that the food shortage has become very high and people are started to burning out and they don't know how long this will go. So uh, people are really helpless right now and they, they have no idea how to continue their life. They're just surviving. On the other hand, when I talk to people, they don't want to give up on this revolution as well because if they give up, the country will be gone. So everyone, civil disobedient movement, or the people who are in the armed resistance, despite the difficulty that they are facing, despite the struggle that they are going on, they, they believe that they are going to fight until the end, until they win. And that's The Take. If you want to learn more about what life has been like for people in Myanmar over this past year, check out Nunu and Emily's reporting. We'll post links to it on our social media feeds. We're at AJ the Take on Twitter and Instagram. This episode was produced by Priyanka Tilbe with Nagin Oliai, Ruby Zaman, Ney Alvarez, Alexandra Locke, Amy Walters, and me, Malika Bilal. Aya Elmilek is our engagement producer. Alex Roldan is our sound designer. Tom Fenton is the Take story editor, and Stacey Samuel is executive producer. We'll be back. 